podcast world with Shake and Chad Belding. Another episode of This Life Ain't for Everybody. Again, brought to you by our friends at Jack Daniels, Lynchburg, Tennessee. Enjoy it responsibly and make sure you never allow any underage drinking, but let Jack be there for you for the good times, the high times, the low times, the sad times. We appreciate how Jack Daniels, their iconic brand, supports our passions and our lifestyles of barbecuing, cooking, music, and the outdoors and conservation. I'm so humbled today because sometimes you get starstruck, and I don't really want to say that word because I know this man's going to say, hey, it ain't nothing, but I have one of, I consider one of the best all-around musicians in the country, Charlie Starr, uh, the lead singer, the lead guitarist, a songwriter of one of the most amazing bands ever, Blackberry Smoke. Welcome, my man. Hey, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. How are you today? Man, I'm an eight out of ten, I guess. Did you get good sleep last night? I don't even know what to call good sleep anymore. You don't? I slept I slept some. Uh, I got a uh, crazy quarantine schedule. You know, uh, you? and my, my brain turns on and off at uh, odd hours, but also I have a new puppy and that doesn't help. Oh yeah. Which breed? A little King Charles Spaniel. Oh, nice. I, I just got a yeah. new black lab here from Georgia. My, one of my dog trainers is in South Georgia, Mossy Pond Retrievers, yeah. you know, Brad and them? No, no, but I've heard of them. Yeah, they uh, they do awesome work, and they just came out here a couple weeks ago and brought me a th- one of my three-year-olds back. He's been training like crazy, and he's laying on the floor next to me. His name's Axel, which is ah. which is named after one of my favorite lead men, you know, front men of all time. And I kind of was going to yeah. kick this off, Charlie Starr, by I, I, for, for years I've listened to the song so much, Ain't Much Left of Me, and... I, the way that the song comes in, the way that it's got different levels of the intro, and then when you come in with your very first line, um, this kind of song is like a like just sticks to me because of kind of what you started off. Like I'm an eight out of ten today, but I listened to this song of like what what were you thinking when you wrote, or what were you and your co-writers and bandmates thinking of your fall from grace and wasn't much to see? Can you explain to me a little bit of what is going on in your mind as the songwriter when the pencil goes to paper? Because that line is like so cool to me. Is like my fall from grace wasn't much to see. And, and what were you thinking when you when you dubbed that? Um, well, I had I was uh, not far removed from a divorce at that point. So that's exactly what was going on in my brain at the time. Um, and it was, you know, uh, you know, I was, I was young, uh, and wild and crazy. And, uh, I was just thinking about, well, there, you know, when you're in a situation like that and you're, you're married to a girl and all of her, all the people who love her love you because you're together, or at least they, are supposed to, <laughs> but then as soon as you split up, then they all hate you. You know what I mean? And, uh, or vice versa. Uh, and, uh, it, that's kind of where my brain was like, okay, well, and at the same time, you know, I was doing a lot of stuff to, uh, to, uh, cause a fall from grace, if you will. Uh, but that, that's, that's a divorce song from my perspective. I wrote the lyrics with a guy named David Lee Murphy and, uh, I had never met him before. He came into the room in Nashville one day and, and, uh, co-writing with people that you don't know can be a little strange. Um, uh, cause you're kind of getting to, you know, like feeling each other out kind of like what is, you know, what's on his mind and you know, what kind of songs is he thinking about writing, you know? And he said, uh, 
he, he grabbed a guitar and he said, well, I got this line. And it was, uh, I've been rained on, rode hard and put up wet, dance with the devil till I'm in debt. And, uh, and he started singing that. And I said, that's the chorus. That's the chorus of a song it, to me. And then I said, uh, I think that that should be the chorus and the verse should be. And the first thing that popped into my mind was, well, my fall from grace was a sight to see. Uh, and then we just kind of put it together really quickly right then. And uh, that was it. Well, you mentioned DLM, you know, like he's got to be considered one of the best in the country music realm of being able to tell a story in three and a half minutes. I don't know. If yeah. We've talked about dust on the bottle here in the party crowd and the stuff he's done with Chesney, but um, it seems like he's built a career of just being like, he's almost a unicorn. Like he's like, there's this mystique about DLM, like everybody. And I'm sure you'll say the same thing. Charlie is like, he's just a cool guy. Like he'll just show up wearing some flip flops and some jeans and a, t a camouflage shirt and just sit down and, and come up with a, a line like that. And then 20 minutes later, you guys have arguably, in my opinion, like one of the best Blackberry songs that I just love it. I, I stand on that song, but now to hear that you wrote it with DLM, it's like, well, duh, you know, I mean, two of the greatest writing together. It's got a, have you written with him oh. since? No, just that day. I saw him again about two or three years later uh, at a jam, like a like a guitar pull kind of thing in Nashville. And uh, and we just kind of hung out for a minute. And he said, man, that song has really made some people happy, huh? And I said, yeah, it has. And, uh, and that was it. Was it the biggest song on Whippoorwill in your opinion, as far as when you sat down and listened to it before you put it to, you know, final production, was it one of your favorites on there or was it too, was it just one of those songs that hit you in the heart too much to really be at the top of your list? No, I love it. And I still love to play it now, but when we were, um, when we were recording the record, you know, um, I don't, I don't know about, yeah, if it was the, um, the biggest, you know, it, it was a single, uh, at country radio. I don't think it did very well, <laughs> but I mean, it's definitely one that people, um, uh, appreciate. It resonates with people, uh, oh, you know, man. but it's simple, it's simple language. You know, it's not by any means like, uh, some abstract Bob Dylan kind of thing. It's pretty much like, well, uh, you know, life's tough. Uh, well, it's just, it's, it's so simple, but then after you get done with the first two verses and then you got to go into, would that be called the bridge where you're kind of bridging the musician into that last verse to where the listener is like already got his or her feel, right? Like we're feeling yeah. like, man, my fault. You should have seen it, man. It was spectacular. My fall from grace yeah. was a sight to see. And, you know, being what DLM's line was about being put away and rode hard. And then all of a sudden you hit him with it again with the fall from grace line again. And you're just like, damn it, man. It's like, this song is badass. So just c c congrats on like being able to put something like that together. I'm all the way out. You have fans all over the world now and we will get into Europe and South America now, but, and what, what Blackberry smoke means to so many people. But when I hear that song, it like gives me hope. It gives me voice. It gives me freedom. It gives me sanctity. It lets me breathe a little bit easier. And I think it's a good song. If you're listening out there, start your day off with it. Put it on your alarm clock. You know what I mean? It's like that song can really drive you to be a better version of yourself that day, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, it, that, it, it, you know, from time to time, uh, as, as we get older, time moves on, you know, and as a songwriter um, and you're singing a song you wrote, um, specifically one a, a long time ago, um, uh, on stage from time to time, it'll kind of hit you like, 
where you were and and who you were and what you were doing, you know. And uh, that one always, uh, it doesn't always take me back to being, uh, you know, div- freshly divorced. But but I think about, you know, how far you, you, you just said it, how far you go uh, throughout your life. You know, good times, bad times, in between times, boring times. But some of those things are like, whoa, I can't believe that I got pulled over and I had an eight ball of Coke in the car and I had no driver's license and no insurance, (laughs) you know, that kind of thing. You're like, wow, I made it through that. And I, and I'm better better for it on the other side. Could I say that on the air? I don't know. No, you can not. say whatever you want. I, I think it's I think transparency is everything in life as far as what happens as like the Charlie Star today is what maybe you were ten years ago, right? Like I, I feel it. I'm forty five years old and I've made mistakes to where I look back at it and like always have the mindset of like life is about learning from that, right? And and yeah. I and I always tell people, Charlie Star, that I lean on music to get me through a lot of that because I think songwriting is such a special craft that needs to be so respected and put on a like pedestal in our country because of what music has done and not just the deliverer of the song, not just the badass band that you guys are and the percussion and the, and everything that you guys stand for, but the lyrics and putting the lyrics out front. Um, I just think that if people understood how important songwriting has been to our lives, whether you're listening to Elvis and he's got you kicking up your heels a little bit, or a little Richard song, think about the lyrics and when they were actually written and what people are thinking. It just, when, when I hear that you were going through a divorce and you get to write a song like that, but that song has helped so many more people through a divorce or a breakup or a bad time or, or just like to put a smile on your face because to think that a, a fall from grace could be so spectacular to watch. That's what I get yeah. out of it. Like, Hey, watch this. I'm just like literally yeah. falling to pieces in front of you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's what I get out of it, man. And I just love the way, and I, when I listened to it today before my workout, I was like, I really get to talk to Charlie Star today. And I don't mean to say like, wow, wow. I'm just telling you, man, I think that you were like here where I brought up Axel. Yeah. Slash to me, um, since I started listening to Guns N' Roses in about 87, when I was 12 years old, 13 years old, um, 87 Appetite came out and I've just always been wowed by him. And I would guess if I had, if I was a betting man, I would say without asking you that you have a huge amount of respect for their musicianship and what Slash means to rock and roll and his passion and delivery. Right. So, but, but he has a support system and so do you, you have a great band, but He's not coming on the mic after he rips a Sweet Child of Mine riff or a, a locomotive riff or a coma riff or something or the Godfather theme and then goes it starts singing. You're doing all of that after you write the song. You're doing all of that lead in with the guitar and the lead guitar. And I know you have support and I know that you're going to acknowledge your bandmates, which they should be because you guys are genius. But then you sing. And, you, and, you, and you're delivering the song like Axel would after Slash plays all the riffs. This doesn't happen very often in American music or rock and roll, does it? Oh, I think it does. I really? Mean, you know, there, um, there, there have been a lot of, uh, you know, guitar player, singer, songwriter guys, you know, down through the years. Lowell George from Little Feet and um, Billy Gibbons and, you know, uh, uh, I've always been, well, I didn't, I didn't start out as a singer. Um, when I went back, you, you mentioned it right then, 87 guns and roses changed the landscape. Uh, I remember being in the eighth grade and the popular stuff then go coming from the, you know, into the late eighties, a lot of it was pretty plastic, uh, a lot of hairspray, 
a lot of pointy guitars. And I remember seeing Welcome to the Jungle on MTV and being like, okay, that's that's different. That's real. And like even even the guitar solo on that song, you could sing it. And all these other bands, you know, it was all about how many notes they could play, which, you know, that's kind of cool sometimes. But Slash was like immediately had was giving you the meat and potatoes. Like this is this is a Les Paul through a Marshall. And we got, you know, we got this great band and this singer's screaming his ass off. But I was like, that's real. Um, and I couldn't get enough. Uh, me and my buddies wore that cassette out. Me too. Uh, I mean, there's a reason why it, it sold 30 million copies plus, you know, since it was released. But, but right around that time, it, even friends of mine, we had like a little garage band and we played birthday parties and stuff. And I just played the guitar. And uh, we always had a singer, and and then and that was that was the way it was in our minds. Then you got to have a drummer, bass player, two guitar players, and a singer that stands there with the mic stand and spins it around and you know does his thing. And then after dealing with singers up until I was about I don't know, 19 years old, dealing with crazy lead singers, I finally was like, screw it, man, I'll try. You know, these dudes that. Uh, I mean, you know, we're all kids, but it seemed very stressful to me then. <laughs> what did I know? I didn't even have bills to pay yet. But but that's when I was like, like the drummer in the band. He was like, why don't you just sing? Forget him. You know, he's not going to show up. And so that started it uh, there. It was like out of necessity. It's like, all right, we got a gig and the singer ain't coming. I'll sing. So, so one thing that you that I can say that I agree on with Charlie Starr or that we both agree on is that my friend in California a couple months ago made a comment and he said, you know, Guns N' Roses was one of the best hair bands of all time. And I stopped him right there and I said, no, they're not a hair band. They're not. They're not poison. They're not warrant. They're not what you're t what, what we're describing in the 80s. Now, there was some stuff in the 80s that was like the quiet riots and the Aussies going on. And 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 in some like Skid Row, Sebastian Bach came in there late in the 80s. That was that was killer. But as far as like being ahead of their time, they were on a different level of musicianship. Is that fair to say that we agree on that? Totally. Yeah. Awesome. It was like, it was like, uh, it was hitting a similar nerve as the stones and Aerosmith. You know, it was just like a, like, like the, the evolution of that, of that gritty kind of sleazy rock and roll, you know, but they wrote songs. They had fantastic songs that people still want to hear today. Uh, I went to see them at the Georgia dome. There were 60,000 people there. I'm like, that's what good songs get you right there is a is 60,000 people wanting to want after it after like a 20 year layoff huh? could yeah. you imagine could you imagine blackberry breaking up for 20 years and then coming back together and then just selling out every arena in the world that like gnr did the last three and a half years but we'd be 80 if we tried that <laughs> <laughs> so you talk about listening to appetite you're you're you're, you're are you are you from originally alabama or georgia i've seen both alabama. are you you're from alabama right yes. so you're are you do you have a huge country music influence as a kid growing up is it bluegrass is it is it church music is it gospel going to church every week with your mom and dad where does the influence start to round you out as a musician all of that all um, of that yeah my well my dad he he's the reason why i wanted to play the guitar because he did and he really only liked bluegrass music um and hank williams senior and he did squeeze a little johnny cash in there too but he, he liked to sing folk songs, you know, hillbilly string band music. 
uh, Bill Monroe and Flatten Scruggs and the Stanley Brothers and things like that. And so I loved it too, and I still do. It's 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 uh, in my DNA. Um, but my mom, she liked the Beatles and the Stones and Bob Dylan. Um, and so all that kind of got mixed up, you know, when I was a little kid. When I would hear like honky tonk women, and then I hear Blue Moon of Kentucky, and I'm like, that's not really that much different. One's just louder than the other one, you know. Um, and then, but her uncles, my, my mother's uncles were in a gospel group called the Swanee River Boys that were really successful back in the 40s and 50s. And uh, they were on Columbia Records and did like USO tours with Bob Hope. So there was music always um, at every family reunion, at every, uh, my dad played every day, you know, and, and uh, so it was always there. Uh, he, he, he would definitely prefer to pick up his guitar and sing your cheating heart to me than he would take me out and throw the baseball. Wow, it, was, that's cool. it, was, it was in him too, you know? Does it, is it kind of like that where you're at home with mom one day and she's like, you got, you're listening to a, a badass stones record. And then all of a sudden mom leaves and goes, goes out shopping. And now you're with dad and you get, now you're hitting back on the, the, the true country music and the strings and the picking and the bluegrass. But then you're like, you're me and you're about the same age. I would assume if you were in eighth grade, when, when, when appetite came out, are you also yeah. like sneaking away and listening to like, come on, feel the noise and, and iron maiden albums and listen to Bruce and do his thing and getting influenced by everything that's happened in this like uh like there was it was before the hair bands really started but there was like that mixture of rat a little it was like right before rat and twisted sister really hit it big that's when i really got into rock and roll so are you getting yeah. that too that 80s influence at the same time yeah totally i got that from my sister she's four years older than i am and she you know i was i, I was at that age where i was just starting to really form my own opinion about what what music i i what music really touched me, you know, um, the radio was really important too. Then, um, local rock and roll radio from Columbus, Georgia, rock 103, they played cool stuff, but my sister, she was just starting to date and her boyfriend, he loved rat and Van Halen and ACDC and Sammy Hagar and Y and T and quiet riot and Ozzy and, uh, so I'd hear all that. And I'm like, wow, that's really exciting, especially the Van Halen. Uh, but then I met some couple of older guys that played, they had electric guitars, which I didn't have. I had a little cheap acoustic, you know, and they, they were playing Zeppelin and Sabbath riffs like in front of me. So that was really, I'm like, Oh damn. Okay. Wow. Look at that. That's how you do that. So that, that year, like 1984, 1985 was massive. It was like, okay, I, I know what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Right now. God, that's that. so awesome. And let me ask you this about that time, Charlie Starr. Did you get, I had this, um, this, this experience of that same time where I was like, my, I, I remember getting my first metal health cassette at Kmart. My dad, he didn't know that there was a song, a song on there called loves a bitch. He didn't think they cussed. Um, D Snyder didn't, <laughs> D Snyder didn't cuss in his albums, but my first concert ever was TS open for Iron Maiden in Reno, Nevada at the Lawler event center. And pops took me, I'm like 10 or 11 in 1986. And, 
D comes out and every other word is the F word. And I'm looking at my dad going, oh gosh, we're, he's going to, and he just keeps looking at me, right? Because my dad was old school. I couldn't say a cuss word in front of my mom until my dad passed away. You know, he out, it killed me, but my dad passed away in 2006. And I could finally say like maybe a little bit of a, and I still don't really curse around my mom, but yeah. Bruce Dickerson comes out and he comes out with Eddie and 666 is the number of the beast. And my dad said, we're out of here. But at the same time, at the, at the same time, Charlie, I was getting influenced by this band called Dio. And they were yeah. different to me than what was happening with the rats and the quiet rights. Rodney James had like this Charlie star. And I was going to, I wanted to talk to you about this. He had this rawness to him. Like you do like, um, just an unreal voice. It was very, um, very, hard for me to depict or to analyze their lyrics. A lot of them had a lot of different meanings to me, but I got into that band Dio big time, Last in Line, Holy Diver, and I just would rock it. My cousin Eric, who's from that graduated from Auburn in Alabama, he's from Colorado, but lives in Alabama now. He got me into Dio. Did you get into them and were they different than what you were experiencing with like David Lee Roth and Sammy and kind of that kind of that mix up? I didn't then because it was it wasn't allowed in my house because uh, I lived with my mom, my sister and I did. Uh, my mom, our mom and dad were divorced, and it was, so she had uh, she had custody really um, for the week, and then we spent weekends with with pops. But um, but no, and my mom wouldn't allow uh, anything that was that looked evil like that. So I remember my sister brought home Kiss Alive too. And it's the cover, you know, Gene Simmons has got the blood coming out of his mouth. That went in the trash. Um, she, uh, Pyromania, Def Leppard, she brought that home. And my mom was going through, she, I don't, Southern people know, might know uh, what I'm talking about when the Baptist side of her really got fired up. And, and it was, that was a weird time. Like people were blaming everything on rock and roll. You know, there were like teen suicide. Uh, a lot of problems thanks to you know like judas, judas records and things like that but my mom had like a like a record burning in the front yard and i remember i thought it was very ironic that she was burning pyromania uh, right <laughs> the in the front yard. but 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 other stuff she she would kind of let slide um like the van halen didn't bother i think she liked it i think that she well like against her better judgment coming from a Baptist point of view, she's like, well, this is actually damn good. So I, I'm going to let this go. But at the, this is a funny story too, man. Uh, me and my best friend were riding our bikes, our BMX bikes. And there was a little place called Crowhop. And it was this basically a dirt road with a big mud hole in the middle of it. And that's where all the teenage kids would go with their, their three wheelers back then. I don't think four wheelers had come around yet, but three wheelers and trucks and, and motorcycles and they'd go mud riding. And uh, pretty much any day of the week, you could go down there and you could find some carnage. Like there'd be a truck on its roof or uh, an abandoned three-wheeler or, you know, stuff that we could pilfer through and find looking for money or weed or, you know, a beer that wasn't open. Or So we go and sure enough, there's a truck on its, on its top flipped over. I think it was a little Toyota one of those little old 70s Toyotas, but it had been converted to like four-wheel drive, had like big motors on it. And uh, there was some stuff spilled out, just left on the ground. There was a, a cooler and some empty cans and bottles. And, and then there was uh, a little a little pile of cassettes in the mud. 
And so I, I saw those and I went over and like they had been in one of those little black Ziploc containers full of cassettes. You know? And I picked one up and rubbed the mud off and it said, Hank Williams Jr., the pressure is on. So I stuck that in my pocket. I picked up another one and rubbed the mud off of it and it said Aerosmith rocks. So I stuck that one in my pocket. I didn't really know that much about either one of them at that point. I was about 11. And I got home and I put the Hank Jr. in and I was like, okay, well, that I can dig that. You know, that's that's country music. And I put the Aerosmith in and back in the saddle was the first song that I heard. And I didn't really know who they were then because that was about a year before they they sort of had a resurgence with Ace or with uh, Run DMC. When they Walk this way. Re-released Walk This Way. Yep. Anyway, that's just, that's neither here nor there, but that was pretty pretty cool little pretty cool day. No, I think it's almost my same mindset. I remember going through stores, almost like I had a type A personality back then, like I still do. And I collected baseball cards like they were going out of style. Had to have every Bo Jackson card, had to have every George Brett card. Had to, If I had one, I had to have them all. Um, but I was like that way with cassettes. I would get so enamored by going into the old record sales. We had Tower Records. We had Marabelli's records and tapes. I remember being in the, like, we called it the dungeon because it was so dark in there. And they had the tapestries hanging from the ceiling, lights hitting them just right. And you'd see Wasp and then Blackie Lawless would be on a poster. And I'd see Rodney James Dio. And I'd see, I'd see you know, all of these rock stars. And I would hit get the hit Prater magazines and the circus magazines. And I, I never learned how to play music. Uh, music musical instrument which really disturbs me today i i've taken drum lessons and i have promised myself charlie that when i'm done with this part of my career i really want to become at least a little bit proficient on the skins but yeah. mu music was everything to me like if i if i wasn't playing baseball or fishing or hunting with dad, I was listening to music or at least trying to figure out where I remember staying up late at night on Friday nights before MTV, before we had any cable, they had Friday night videos and I couldn't wait for Friday night videos to come on. So I was kind of that same way. I would pick up a cassette and I'd be like, Oh man, I'm listening to this. And I wish, I wish one day I hope that we get to meet and you could see my cassette collection. Cause I'm really proud of the bootlegs. Uh -huh. Like, like when I would travel to Europe or Italy with mom and dad, I would go and I would find all the rock and roll stores, all the underground stores to get a shirt that barely fit me because the European sizing was off. So I'd have to get a different deal. And then I would get all those little, little car, you know, the cardboard sleeves with the single sets and I would collect them. G and R had the, the robot on it, the night train uh, one. And I, and Van Halen and Sammy, I can't drive 55. And I just started collecting all of these cassettes. And I, that's going into my next, my next, you know, thought with you, Charlie is consumption of music. Now, can you imagine if we did not get to experience what we're talking about going into Marabelli's and flipping through the albums, which you can in a recycled record, there is a resurgence of vinyl right now, which I'm thanking my lucky stars. How do you listen to music? Do you ever go back and put it in an old eight track or an old cassette? Do you love vinyl? Do you respect the sound that vinyl get, puts out? And do you take a lot of pride in sitting down during the day and, and, and listening to albums? Is there a lot of influence in that type, the way you get your music? Yeah, it's it's vinyl all day, every day here at this house. Oh, cool! Um, I, it was just about five or six years ago, maybe that, um, well, maybe a little longer than that. That we we first released uh, our the album we made called The Whippoorwill. That was the first time we pressed vinyl when it was just starting to become a thing, you know. And and uh, I found a guy in my neighborhood and bought uh, an old Pioneer stereo set up from him with a with a good turntable and i realized okay i never had a good one when i was a kid 
like my mom and dad didn't have a good one either. It was just like your run of the mill, like realistic kind of stuff. So I bought this setup. It's over here behind behind us, and I put on. Uh, I bought it because we pressed final. I wanted to hear it, you know. And I put it on. I was like, "Holy shit! I'm in that room again. This is so warm and so real sounding." And I'd been hearing, you know, MP3s and digital versions of the music. I'm like, "Wow, what a what a difference!" I forgot, you know, about how what an impact. Even but even like you said, cassette tape is warmer too it sounds better i mean how many times did you play a tape so many times you broke it and you had to get a piece of clear tape and get your scissors or a razor blade and cut it and splice it back together with that tape so you keep keep listening to it so master yeah i just think that that whole the whole way that we got to do that is so meaningful. And I think that, you know, it's, it's been documented, obviously I'm not reinventing the wheel here, but just going into a record store and to see them all gone. Now it's kind of, it kind of hurts a little bit to know that people, you know, I, I know evolution's everything and I know that you can't be ignorant and you have to evolve. You have to do it in music to keep your livelihood and your revenue going. We get it. But there is something to say about that feeling of getting out of the car and the anticipation of getting in the dungeon and flipping through records and seeing the artwork of, of D sitting there with that big bone with the, the purple and black suit on with his curly hair. Like when I saw the Stay Hungry album cover, I was like, are you kidding me? And then when Randy Rhodes and Ozzy are on the cover and Randy was doing his thing and the, to hear a song like crazy train on vinyl, like when they say all aboard, it's just a warmer feeling. Like you're saying it like made me want to want to be around them. It wasn't just generic. Like today it seems like you can just press a button and get any band. And it's just like right there at your fingertips, which I guess is cool because it's going to sell tickets to hopefully come and see you guys live. But the days of selling big numbers of records, like you mentioned, appetite selling 30 million plus what Michael Jackson did, what Bruce Springsteen has done, what the Beatles have done. Um, does it bug you at all, Charlie Starr, that you don't have the ability to keep that part of your music base going of being able to sell an album or have you, have you already accepted it? Like, Hey, we just have, cause it has been described. Your touring has been described as relentless. Like you guys get out and you obviously COVID has stopped that, but you guys, how many dates is it usually? And is that really where you, where you have to stay consistent now because the album sales aren't going to come back? Yeah. Um, well, that, we we do, we do normally between 100 uh, to 150 shows a year now. We used to do more. But we've done up to 250 before, but that'll kill you. That's that's inhuman, <laughs> inhumane. Um, but we're lucky, man, because I think your typical Blackberry Smoke fan um, likes physical product. They like to. They still like to, just like we do. They they like to hold a record or a CD or a DVD in their hand, um, and that's great because that gives us a reason to, you know, Brit, our drummer, for him to design artwork. He's a he's a great artist, and he designs all of our uh, T-shirts and album covers. And it it you know there's it's all part of an album experience to me. Just like you say, like I. I'm going to listen to it and I'm going to look at the cover and I'm going to look at the back cover and I'm going to open it up and I'm going to read all the liner notes. And I'm going to read where it was recorded and who played what, and who wrote what, and you know, who they thank. <laughs> and I've been doing that since I was 11 years old. I can't stop now, you know, Me but, uh, but you're right. Also though, I mean, everyone's physical sales plummeted with the, with the, uh, 
uh, streaming and you know the way that music is consumed these days digitally. Um, and I do too. You know, when I'm not listening to records in in my house, I'm listening to digital music and you know on my phone. Um, it's uh, crazy to think about too that you can pick up your phone and basically find any song ever recorded in five seconds. And I remember right when I first got my driver's license, driving to Atlanta from Valley, Alabama, 85 miles to go to record stores and look for stuff that I didn't have. And then getting back in the car, if it was vinyl, and got to wait two hours to drive back home before I could hear it, you know? And now it's just like, hey, Siri, play, you know, <laughs> whatever. Anything you want. Crazy. Yeah, it's it's crazy. It's it's kind of nice in a way if you if you're a lover of music to be able to get. Uh, I mean, you could just tie, like you said, just tell Siri to play. It could be from the '60s, '70s, '8. What doesn't matter? They Apple Music and Steve Jobs, whoever put that together, Spotify. They I don't know how it's done. I don't know how, I don't know how, you know, it's above my pay grade, but man, it's handy. Sometimes you're having a little get together and you could form a playlist for that night and just let it play without touching your stereo ever again. And, and when you think about some of the comments you just said, Charlie, about, um, you know, the, the, the radio and being able to turn on the country radio or the rock radio 103, I think you said in Atlanta when you were growing up, I had, I had KOZZ, the rocks, and I had cable of the country and I had 97.3 K wins for the pop, you know, and then you had the nine at nine where you'd sit up and try to win a contest. And there's still a little bit of that going on, but with the Blackberry smoke career, you guys have had debut albums at number one on billboard charts. You've had singles out there that went to went went and charted. You've had number one, one singles in in the UK and Europe but not a lot of radio support you have a great relationship with Outlaw Country on Sirius XM um my whole stance is that the world needs blackberry smoke the world deserves to hear blackberry smoke i want to hear good raw authentic country music rock music whatever it is but I don't understand why I can't get it on the main, you know, like the mainstream part of quote unquote American radio, whether it's country or rock and roll or whatever. How have you done that? How have you masterpieced this together of being so influential, being so successful, but not having a, it's like what Stapleton's kind of doing right now, if you will. I don't know if you'll agree with that or not, but Chris is amazing. He's a God given talent, right? He, we deserve to have that man in our lives and I don't know him. I'm just saying like, when you hear him sing, you get goosebumps but he doesn't have a whole lot of radio success. I think he has one number one as an artist and a few more as a writer, but you know what I mean? You guys are doing the same thing with not a lot of support. How does that happen in today's world of music? Uh, well, I don't know how it happens, but I mean, uh, we gave it the good college try one time, meaning that we tried to play the radio game and it didn't work. Uh, and I, I took what I took from it was, well, these song, these Blackberry Smoke songs are not what they're looking for. They being, you know, program directors and the people who turn the screws at uh, at radio. Um, and I wasn't offended or anything. I was like, I get it. I mean, you know, we're not we're not eighteen and we're not cute and we don't have a a really catchy sappy song. You know, it's we're we're trying to, you know, play music that really that resonates with us. You know, and maybe and hopefully does other people, but something that's got some meaning. Not not so much, you know, a party song or a drinking song or I don't know. I mean, there there was a time when uh, we were going to work with a radio team 
from a label and they had, I was on a phone call and, um, and they were asking me what I thought the single should be off the album. And I said, I don't know. I thought that's what you guys were going to choose, you know? And they basically went down the list, the songs on the album, basically giving me reasons why this one won't work. This one won't work. This one won't work. And I was like, well, why are we on the phone? You know, I mean, this is our album and, and I hope people buy it and enjoy it, but far be it for me to understand what will and won't work on a radio station. You know, um, I don't know. I, I kind of figured that, that that time had passed us by a long time ago. So to answer your question, um, we don't know any other way. <laughs> we just, you know, it really is pretty simple. We just um, record records and, you know, and put them out and, and then tour and, yeah. I guess my I guess my devil's advocate statement, Charlie Starr, would be, well, you guys sell out show after show. You have a huge cult following all over the world. Radio is about making money. People want to hear Blackberry Smoke records and songs. So why would they not play it when they're going to have so many people wanting to hear it, making the advertisers get more, you know, you know, money coming in or the radio stations getting more money coming in from potential advertisers. It just doesn't make sense as a business plan. Like you have already proven that you have people all over the world that want to hear your music. So that's kind of where I was going with it is that it seems like if I was a radio programmer or I was on 16th and 17th Avenue or, or in LA, or I was, you know, I was programming a radio for the day. I would want to put in there what people want to hear. And you guys have proven that your music is heard and wants to be heard even more. So I guess that's where I'm coming from, right? It's like people want to hear it. So why not play it if you're the radio programmer? And to say that those songs don't work at radio, I I would I would beg to differ and have an argument on every single one of them. I could go down your entire track list and say, uh, yeah, it would. Yeah, it would. People want well, to hear this stuff. And I know that I'm not an 18-year-old girl buying a shirt in a, in a, a, and going to a Kane Brown concert. And I think everybody has talent and deserves to make a living. But that doesn't mean that I don't want to turn over and hear Charlie Starr rocking it with his band, Blackberry Smoke. There's a, there's a place for all of it. And, and I don't know if even that, some of the music's on country music is even country anymore. So it's, right. it's just, it's a weird deal to me. It's a phenomenon. Yeah. Um, you know, and that being said, though, I can't, um, there have been some DJs um, over the years that I've spoken to in lots of cities in the U.S., uh, that have worked for smaller stations or even even uh, taken a risk and said, hey, I'm playing you. I don't care what this person says or this person says, I'm playing you. And I thank those guys so, so profusely. It was like, wow, well, thank you. you know? Awesome. Um, not many. I could count them on two hands. But that, that was that really uh, meant a lot to me to, to hear somebody um, feel passionately about that when, you know, um, maybe they were being forced to play a lot of stuff they didn't you know have respect for i don't know but anyway there have my point is that i can't i was i wasn't damning them all <laughs> there were there were a few when you sit down to could you if you were asked or if i gave you a homework assignment i'm your teacher in college i'm your professor and i said charlie tonight's assignment is i want you to come back tomorrow and you have to give me your top five best guitar players of all time in the rock and roll rock and roll platform could you do that or do you have so much influence from so many people that you can't even think about narrowing it down to five um i mean i could probably do uh five yeah i don't know if i could do it right now oh hell i can do it right now um it's hard to 
this is not going to be in order of importance. Okay. It's not okay. like win, uh, winner starting at number one. Okay. Let's see if I can. Um, Keith Richards, Jimmy Page. I'm going to run out of room because five is not enough. Um, did I say Jimi Hendrix, of course? You said Jimi Hendrix, Jimmy Page, and Keith Richards. Uh, and Keith is in there because of the songs he writes, of the riffs, the riffs he writes on the guitar that we can't live without, you know, not because he can whip out uh, a blazing solo because he doesn't do that. But he wrote the riff to Honky Tonk Women and Brown Sugar and Jumpin' Jack Flash. That's enough for me. <laughs> That's um, so cool. Uh, Billy Gibbons. Oh, God. Amazing. He's been on here, Charlie. Uh, he's been on the pocket. Man, you talk about... Yeah. I've heard quotes, and I don't know if it's true, but I heard that Jimi Hendrix went on a talk show, and they said, how does it feel to be the best guitar player in the world? He says, I don't know. You need to call this white guy named Billy Gibbons in Texas and ask him. I've heard that yeah. story. Have you, have you heard that? I heard it, too, yeah. <laughs> okay, um, I'm glad you said Billy, because he is legend. And, uh, oh yeah, five's not enough. Dwayne Allman since I only had one finger left on this hand, um, for me, um, you know, but God, I, Joe Perry and Brad Whitford and Angus and Malcolm Young and, uh, Tony Iommi and Jerry Garcia and Lowell George. And I, the, the list, you're right. The list is too long. What about Joe Bonham? Uh, uh, how do you pronounce his last name? Joe Bonamassa. Yeah. He's a badass he's, guitarist. He's great. He's fantastic. He's a was Jimmy Malstein a great guitarist, or was it just his name that brought people to listen to him? No, he's great. I mean, his ability is uncanny. Um, I never got into him because it's like, it's almost like math. He's playing so fast, you know. And, I mean, he was playing in all those classical modes, you know, which is really deep musically. But I tell you what's funny, when I was 11 or 12, uh, the two guitar players, the two rock and roll guitar players that topped the heat in, in my age group then were Eddie Van Halen and Randy Rhodes. And you kind of had to choose if you were an Eddie guy or a Randy guy. And I always chose Eddie, um, not, not taken away from Randy Rhodes, but Eddie kind of, if you listen closely, there's some blues in there. There's a lot. There's a lot of a lot of feeling and a lot of kind of nasty kind of greasy bluesy feel to it. like if you listen to the solo for hot for teacher oh man great uh, i was just going to bring up that song yeah and randy was not i mean he had some of that too but not as much as eddie and and eddie was much more um uh, i would say that he was a um a bit more of a trailblazer and you know he he kind of of all those la guys uh, and those, the hard rock guys then, you know, Eddie in 78, I mean, he changed the face of guitar, of rock and roll guitar. Uh, think about the first time you heard Eruption. Oh. And uh, I remember, I remember thinking, what instrument is that? That can't be a guitar. That sounds like, you know, like a spacecraft or something. One dude, you know. So 
if you had more time to think, does Eddie Van Halen, Randy Rhodes, and I'm going to throw my favorite guitarist Slash in there? Do they make yeah. your top, do they make your top twenty five? Maybe because you didn't mention any yeah. of them. So they, they they are that good. They like Slash yeah. is that good. Like he's not just a showman. He he like even like even like since he's been sober, it seems like he's caught another level of musicianship. And I think Eddie did. Um, I don't know how good Randy Rhodes could have been if the tragedy didn't happen, but those three make your top 25. If I give you more time to think maybe a two night homework assignment. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I kind of, you know, you go, you go through changes as far as, uh, musicians do, um, uh, as to what really tickles your funny bone. Uh, and so like, I remember, but you know, what, I don't think when, if I listen to Van Halen's first record right now, it probably doesn't light my fire as much as it did when I was 12. And not because I'm, I'm not saying it's childish. I'm saying it was so new to me then. And then now I might rather hear Dickie Betts play than Eddie Van Halen. You know, maybe it's because I'm getting old. I don't know. But you, you start to find your ear starts to discern certain things. And like, uh, like Jessica, uh, that beautiful instrumental it'll really hit your heart a different way than eruption will. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, like, for sure. It's my wife. Sometimes like I'll get in a mood and, and a, like I might put a motorhead record on and like Man. in the other room, I, I hear her go, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I it's love three Lenny. in the afternoon. <laughs> yeah, a little early. And so, but I don't know. Um, uh, I just love it all, man. I love, I love the guitar can't get enough of it does does clapton make the list and yeah was he cream were you a cream guy with clapton's guitar playing or do you like his acoustical stuff or is it all just awesome to you because he well, is pretty spe- awesome. he is pretty special he is i mean he he was uh one of the guys that got um he had a he had it rough in the 80s there was some pretty cheesy music that he made but uh even before cream he made a record with John Mayall's Blues Breakers. Um, it was a, a British blues band. And he he changed the face of rock and roll guitar with that record. <clears throat> it's the record that made all those guys back then want a, a Les Paul and a Marshall. And uh, the, tone, the guitar tone on it, it, it might seem primitive to a person who is into, you know, newer music now. They might be like, oh, that sounds quaint you know but back then it was it was unheard of the guitar was it was kind of nasty and breaking up you know um but yeah and then cream and then Derek and the dominoes and uh, he played with delaney and bonnie and that was great and he's done he's had a career man career what about the name jerry reed is he an amazing yeah. isn't he a, like i I, I discovered his. I was a huge fan, obviously, smoking the Bandit and Eastbound and Down. You, as a kid, you hear that, but I discovered him kind of like I discovered John Prine later in life, and I discovered Jerry Reed. I'm talking just solely about his guitar picking skills, the videos that are out there with him and Chet, and what a character he was. But is he underrated as far as like the discussion when you start talking about some of the greatest guitarists of, of all time? Probably in the discussion, yes, but among guitar players and musicians, he's not underrated at all. People he's, know. He, they like, know. Yeah. Well, you know, Chet had a. Chet is arguably the greatest guitar player that ever lived. I mean, if you if you talk to guitar players, they they talk about 
of course, Hendrix gets mentioned just because of his power on that instrument. And it just, it, it was, it was unlike anything that came before it, you know, it really was a world changing thing. Um, but before that, you know, in different circles, there was Chet Atkins and Merle Travis and they were Nashville guys, but they were playing that really complicated finger picking style where they, they were like a one man band. You know, they were with their thumb. They were basically playing the bass and the rhythm parts, you know, and then playing these melodies with their fingers. And Chet got really, really, really advanced with it where he was playing these, these like mini operas on the guitar. And so he would he would pick guitar players. And I guess he sort of discovered Jerry Reed, you know, and started to produce his records. And he gave out the certification. Certified guitar player as per Chet Atkins and Jerry Reed was one of them. And I think he only did it like to five people like Tommy Emmanuel is one of them. And I think Merle Travis was one and, and there's a list somewhere. I'm sure you can Google it, but Jerry, yeah, Jerry Reed was definitely, you know, he, like you mentioned it, like his, his persona sort of overshadowed how awesome he was on the guitar from time to time. Cause he was said he would be, he would act like such a clown, you know, to get laughs. And that was part of his, his bit, you know, he was really funny, but it's just like, uh, before, you know, smoking the bandit, he was laying it down. Like nobody has, nobody's business. Amazing too. Like, okay. You just made a comment about how over, you said the word overshadow, Charlie does, do the Rolling Stones kind of get that same overall, effect that they're the dancing and kind of the poppy look and the dress shirt, you know, the way that Mick would dress. They are a legitimate badass rock and roll band that can shred your face off with their songwriting, their stage presence, their musicianship. Do they get overshadowed by some of the antics or some of the, the talk about their relationship and how hairy it's been over the years with Keith and Mick, or even like some of the songs that made them famous. Like I can't get no satisfaction became like this kind of like this, seance song or this ba not a ballad but you know like a a revolution song for people to to kind of protest with or whatever but do they get overshadowed as being a legitimate rock and roll badass band i don't think so i think you it's don't? all just part of the stew you know mick jagger like he is definitely rock and roll's greatest front man um not the greatest singer nobody's ever you know nobody's ever been like he is the greatest vocalist it's just he's an entertainer and, uh, you know, you know, you're going to get that when you see him live from the beginning. You know, he was the guy who was running, you know, and he was the, the focal point, you know, and the and the the interplay between he and Keith and when they would sing on the same mic and they kind of taught the world how to be a rock and roll band. You know, I can't argue that. But would you all, if I said you have Axel, Freddie, Robert and Mick. Mick tops all three of them as the best front man of all time. Um, well, he's my favorite front man. He's your favorite. Uh, but Steven Tyler's in there too. Steven. Oh, I forgot Steven. Yeah. Amazing. Um, I mean, those, those guys check different boxes for me, you know, like, uh, if you're going with singer, I go with Paul Rogers from free and bad company. I, to me, his voice is the best of that group of people. Uh, and still is. I don't know. I saw saw him last year, still singing the hell out of those songs. Um, 
you know, Robert Plant was the, he was the first one with that just super soaring vocal, you know, way up there. Uh, I, I've often asked myself, why is it that people like to hear men sing that high? <laughs> it's such, it, it's a thing, right? Like yeah. how high can you scream? And he was kind of the first, wouldn't you say he's kind of the first guy to really just, you know, I would, I mean, I, little Richard too, his vocals were way up there, but in a different kind of thing, you know, but, um, I don't know. There's just, and Freddie was just like a trumpet. His voice was like a, like a trumpet, you know, just Wait, unbelievable. Describe that to me. I've never heard a voice referred to as like a Louis Armstrong trumpet, like the instrument. Yeah. Just this, this sh like sharp, not sharp meaning out of tune, but like this really sharp, it was like a sword. It cut you. Like it his, cut through the you. The power of his voice. Yeah. It, much more so than like Robert Plant could, I mean, he had power too, but, Freddie had all, it's like an operatic power to his voice. Do you think I mean, that was, Axel, when Axel came, that he was kind of like a mixture of the Mick, the Robert, he, you could tell he was getting his influence of his stage presence from Mick. Freddie Mercury had a, a different stage presence, but Axel was hitting those falsettos. He was getting up there and getting those notes yeah. and holding them at the same time. If you mentioned Mick Jagger running, Axel would like do probably 10 miles a night on that huge stage on the use your illusion tour in 92, yeah. 91, 92, 93. Do you, I keep going to Axel just because I, I, I just see him like that guy that was like the mixture of all those, but he held it together. Like he kept rock and roll alive in my, I know the mighty Met got huge, right? And Metal yeah. got big, but like to me, Hetfield wasn't Axel, but right. it was like that mystique of guns and roses kept rock and roll alive for me in a lot of ways. Um, even yeah. though that you had the stones, but the appetite and then the illusion records, and then they were gone and I just got left begging for more. So I don't know where you stand on it, but I keep bringing him back just because to me, he was like the guy that, that glued it all together for me through my years. Yeah. You know, I remember, um, listening to that, you know, to appetite for destruction and thinking, well, you know, he's, he's got that, he's got that, Brian Johnson kind of falsetto gritty thing. But I, but I was like, but it's a little bit different. And his phrasing became a, a cultural phenomenon with all the I, 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 and all that. Those are axolisms. Nobody else did them. Was, he, he brought that to the table, you know, for, for that band. And people started to mimic him everywhere, you know, like the whole, and his dance and, but then like my buddies and I, we, I mean, you know, we were, we were young, we were listening to it. We didn't know that much about rock singing, you know, and making records. And, and I remember I'm, I'm listening to, to it and I, and I hear it's so easy. And I'm like, is that him singing too? Or is that another dude in the band? Cause he's singing down so low, you know? And then later you're like, yeah, that's him. He's got a range for like five octaves from here to here still does. But he always had that, like, to me, there was something that, like those guys that sing the, the falsetto, like him and the singer for Cinderella, Tom Keeper. Tom Keeper, amazing. And Brian Johnson. And uh, they all have a little bit different, like, fingerprint on that falsetto. Because, you know, if, you, if you're singing falsetto, you're not really hearing. It's hard to emote if you're singing that way. You're not getting as much. If you're singing it from your gut, like Bon Scott, you know you hear a little more of that person. Like, yeah, that sounds like him speaking, you know? Yeah. But when you're sense. doing the falsetto, you're not hearing that. You're hearing something different. But with Axel, you do. You hear a real fingerprint. Like, that's him. It's got a little different kind of tone to it. 
It's a great way to put it. As you transition into Charlie Starr, the lead, the front man, the guitar badass, I, I, we're not done with guitar, but songwriting. Um, you've worked with Travis Meadows for years. You are comfortable with this guy. Is that become like a crutch that you got to lean, you guys lean on each other so much to where do you ever find yourself kind of losing the creative process or does it become kind of like you guys just have it when you're in the room together, you know, something good's getting ready to happen out of it because of the confidence and the credibility you have with one another. Um, no, I mean, we, we don't write together that often. We, we, um, generally I'll kind of, uh, just speaking for myself, if I, I'll start an idea and, uh, sometimes they just kind of speak to me. They'll go, I need to call Travis. This is right up his alley. Um, and it's really enjoyable to, cause I don't co-write with a lot of people. It's just not, it's not easy to me. I don't know. I, some people do it for a living. I got friends that that's what they do every day is go have writing appointments all day long. Um, there's a, it just is a little awkward to me. I've never been very good at it, but Travis has always made me very comfortable. I hope I make him comfortable as well, but it's, we don't, we never spend that much time on a song. We don't, you know, beat ourselves to death over it. If we, if we get stuck, we just like, we'll talk about this later, you know, we'll move on. But, um, he's easy, you know, and it's easy working with him. And, um, we've written some songs together. I'm pretty proud of, you know, uh, we think, we think alike, I think, but, um, good dude, man. I trust him. Trust him implicitly. I can tell. Do you think that you're, when you talk about that, you find it difficult and that it's not easy to co-write is because Brent Cobb told me, I, I want to talk about Brent Cobb because he's, I, I know yeah. that you're going to, you work with him on and you're, I think you're about to from some rumors I may have heard, don't know if it's true or not, but maybe you can let the cat out of the bag to me. But he says the same thing, kind of that he's just got this direction to where a lot of people, when they're in there, don't understand that. that it's not just like, well, I got this idea. Let's all think about it and start putting some words together. He already kind of knows where he's going to navigate this song. And I, I would think that a lot that would be intimidating to a lot of people to even try to sit down and try to mess with that. Intimidating might be the wrong word, but maybe challenging. Like you said, like it, it would probably be tough. So is that kind of how you are? You already have this direction that, you know, this song's going to go and you don't want to go get a bunch of paint thrown at the empty canvas on it. It can be that way. I think songs are just, it's crazy. Uh, there's no one way to do it. You know, they come in all uh, different times of day or you know in all different shapes and sizes and they uh i think what i meant to say earlier was to sit to go hey you know what let's write a song and sit down and then go like what are we going to write about sometimes that's tough for me it's like this doesn't feel inspired to me you know what i mean um i don't have an idea right now you know, and, and you don't want to be the dude who says that because that's, you know, that's tough. Um, uh, Brent and I just wrote one actually a few a few weeks ago. That was a really cool tune. And that was something that, um, and it was like what we're doing now, FaceTime, Zoom. Um, I don't know. It, it can just happen any any kind of way. You're right. It could be like, I don't want to, I don't want another opinion on this. I got it. You know, 
And usually that's what songwriters do. You're like, I'm writing this song and it goes like this and this is it. You know, I don't need another opinion or another uh, take on it. Um, but then there are times where you can, I got a buddy, uh, Keith Nelson. He was in that band Buck Cherry for years and years and years. And he and I've written a bunch of songs together over the last couple of years. And he basically will call and be like, I got this guitar riff that goes like this. And I'll go, oh, I know what that needs, you know, and it's like, okay, when we start and, you know, um, yeah. So I guess I'm, I guess I'm full of shit because it can work any way that you. No, I don't think y'all, I think, (laughs) by the way, I think Buck Cherry, they could go down as being one of the most dangerous bands of all time. Like that band was on like, on like level 10 of freaking party and like, um, well, why does Brent Cobb get to write? with Charlie star. Is there a mutual respect there? Did you, do you listen to what he would do with Dave, which we'll talk about Dave a little bit more later. Um, do you have a huge amount of respect for him and what he's done in the, in his style, his, his personality, his individuality? Uh, why does he get an opportunity to write with Charlie star when you don't do it with many folks? Oh, well, I, I wouldn't, I don't know if I put it that way, but I definitely respect him, uh, to the utmost love his records and, um, uh, love his songs, love his songwriting. And uh, it just was one of those things where we, we uh, know one another, you know, and, and uh, it was one of these downtime quarantine things. He's like, let's write a song. I'm like, okay. And he, you know, he's like, I got this idea. It goes like this. I'm like, okay. So it was, it was, it was, you know, it is what it is kind of thing. But So what, what uh, comes out of it? Does Blackberry put it on an album or do you guys decide that right away? Does it go on his next album or how is that structured after you and Brent Cobb write a song together or do you put it out to a publishing and see if somebody else cuts it? I don't know. We actually did it right as we were finishing uh, recording what will be our new Blackberry Smokeout. So we wrote it after that was already done. So I don't know. I don't know if we'll record it also, or if he will, or we'll see, you know, um, that's it's so cool one, to though. hear you say that that because I I when I sit down and listen to Shine on Rainy Day or Digging Holes or some of the you know just everything he's written even the new Keep Them yeah. on Their Toes, I love it. To me, he's on a different level. Like his song, his the way that he puts words together, and like what you said, what what was the thing that you turned with the axolisms? What would that like the I I? What is that called? Um. Well, yeah, axolism. Well, Brent, Brent has Brentisms to me. Like he does. does he really like, that's what I was asking. He's like, doesn't he have yeah. like this? He's got a can, a canny way of drawing you into his story. Right. Yeah. Very unique delivery. Um, I had never, I had not, I had not heard of him before, uh, the shine on rainy day. Um, and somebody sent it to me. Um, was that five years ago? Yeah. Maybe? I'd say four or five. Yeah. Because after uh, that, he had Providence Canyon, and now he's got the new one coming out. And uh, I put it on, and uh, like within the first 10 seconds, it was like, I love this. I don't need to listen. If I didn't hear another note, I can tell you without a doubt, I love this dude. Do you remember what song it was? Was it Digging Holes that came on? Digging Digging Holes. Well, I ought to be working in a cold. When he says that, you're just like, where's he going with this? And then every verse, and then he switches up and goes to the railroad because he's leaving town. And then all of a sudden he ends it by saying he's better off a ghost and he wants to be working in a graveyard. Like that's crazy songwriting to me. Yeah. So, so intelligent. And his voice too. His voice is, it's real. It's, he's not faking it. He's not putting on any kind of, 
you know what I mean? It's that's him. Um, and it's just so easy to spot that, you know, it's just like, he's just being Brent. It's what he does. Are these rumors that I heard Charlie, and I'm not going to say who told him, I can tell you off camera. Um, are you going to be working with him and some, some folks in Georgia coming up here pretty soon on an album or writing some songs? That's the rumor. (laughs) We'll keep it at that then, huh? Because I like when I heard that, I was like, man, that's going to be freaking bad to the bone if it happens. I don't know if it will or not. Yeah. But you 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 guys are getting ready this year before COVID hits. You were going to have was it going to be your first headlining amphitheater tour, like 15,000 seat amphitheaters? Is this what we were talking about or what were you all getting ready to do before COVID hit for summer of 2020? I don't know if it was that big, <laughs> but we were going to do some some amphitheaters. Um, it, it was going to be called the Spirit of the South Tour. And uh, basically, it was going to be like a little traveling festival. That's kind of what I likened it to. And it was going to be the Wild Feathers and the Almond Betts Band and J-Mo, one of the original drummers of the Almond Brothers Band, and Blackberry Smoke. And everybody would play a, a show, a set. And then the last, you know, hour and a half or whatever amount of time, of the night would be a huge jam. And uh, basically the idea came about, it was like, well, we used to do, uh, or we've done like the Peach Fest and Wani and these festivals um, where that would happen. You know, it would wind up a huge jam, excuse me, playing your favorite stuff, you know? And what we were doing was celebrating music of the South, rock and roll music of the South, like obviously the Allman Brothers and Leonard Skinner and, Marshall Tucker band and wet Willie and Charlie Daniels and our favorite stuff, you know, that the stuff that really, uh, people, you know, people call it Southern rock. And that's, that's one, that's one way to describe it. But, you know, all those bands were so different from one another, you know, it just, they were just coming from the Southeastern United States, but we were going to, we're really excited to go on that tour and do that. And of course COVID ruined it for us, but, uh, it's being rescheduled for next summer. Perfect. I would love to see it. And I'd also love to see you and Brent on a, on a gig together. I think it would be a magical night or a magical set of nights. Maybe, oh yeah, man. Maybe a very limited deal. I might start putting this together. If you'll allow me to come up with an <laughs> yeah. idea to maybe get some venues out West here that I would love to bring Blackberry and Brent Cobb out to, uh, I think it'd be a magical night of music. Well, you know, he played with us. Um, he's done a couple of shows with us. Uh, and one was New Year's Eve in Chattanooga. Um, two years ago or la- not last year. I can't remember. I'm getting old. But uh, we wanted to do something special. Uh, we, we'll usually do a cover or two in a show, you know, and, and we switch it up and do different stuff. And, you know, a lot of times we as a band and be like, Hey, let's do this Zeppelin song tonight. Okay. Let's learn it. Or this, you know, whatever. But new year's Eve, uh, I texted Brent and was like, let's do the ballad of Curtis Lowe. Oh. And he said, absolutely. And I said, you sing the second verse. And he's like, absolutely. And, uh, I forget how he put it. He's like, uh, or do I said, do you know it basically first? And he's like, 
there, there ain't a self-respecting Southerner that doesn't know it. <laughs> said, Absolutely. Total Brent, uh, Brentism. Yeah. That's so awesome. he, uh, he killed it. He came up and, and it was just fantastic. I, I, I saw somebody put a video of, of it up and it was just great. Last time I was down in that area for a show, we brought up CDB and in, in that, that song you just talked about, but you pl- went on in a festival and I think 15, 2015, maybe uh, it was in Panama city. And I was backstage by the buses and I was like, was like, Oh my gosh, there's Charlie. And then there's Charlie Daniels and there's Charlie star. And then you guys went up and just freaking tore the face off the crowd. And I remember I was standing there. I was with Drake white at the time. Drake was uh, played right before you and you gave a shout out to Drake, but then Charlie came up and you were so pay- you paid homage to him before you left the stage. Like, hey, and it almost gave me like the feeling of like, did, did people really understand how important Charlie Daniels was to Southern rock? He became a Nashville guy or at the Opry and playing the fiddle and devil went down to Georgia, became huge on country radio. He was on the urban cowboy movie with John Travolta and Mickey Gilly, but he literally was a rock, like a Southern rock guy, right? He was very influential in that way. And that night you said that and I'm like really like that. And then he just came on and he sat there with this fiddle. He wasn't, it was when Charlie was sitting down a bunch and later, like a few years after that, he started standing again before he passed at, but man, what an honor for you to be able to talk about him, play with him and then have him share the stage that night in Panama city. It was awesome. I don't know yeah. if you remember that or not. I do. I do. Um, man, he was, he was my favorite. Like, um, like the songwriters in those bands, um, uh, I uh, revere them, you know, like Greg Allman and Dickie Betts and uh, Toy Caldwell and, of course, Ronnie Van Zant and, and Rossington and Alan Collins and Ed King. And um, they wrote m- the music that I will, uh, I'll keep it in my heart forever. You know, I'll never tire of it. Like, I, I will never not listen to Leonard Skinner and the Allman Brothers Band and Marshall Tucker Band. I always will. It's, it's like we said earlier, it's, it's part of my DNA now. I can't, I can't, you know, shake it. And CDB's <laughs> but, in there with those guys with you. Well, I, I was going to say Charlie is probably the, probably the best storyteller of all those guys. So wow. I remember being a, a young kid and my mom had the, the Charlie Daniels band fire on the mountain cassette that had Trudy on it. And that was, you know, a handful of years before, um, million mile reflections came out which has got devil went down to georgia on it but i remember hearing trudy which is a great story i mean it's just like a little mini novel you know it's like a four minute just fantastic story about this local guy who's a gambler and a pimp and you know he's a local badass and charlie's character takes him out you know and i remember you know i must have been like eight years old and listening to this going like wow you know, it's interesting. I, I I don't know that there were many songs that I was hearing then that were really getting at me with a story like that, you know? Um, and then like uneasy rider where, you know, he's driving, he's got the flat tire and pulls into the little, little redneck town and he's Amazing got long story. hair and smoking, smoking the joint and getting checked, you know? Yeah. It, like not, not taking away from Greg Allman and Ronnie Van Zant but they didn't write like that. You know, they did a thing of their own that was just as powerful and maybe even, maybe even more so, you know, I mean, they had more hits, but, but 
Charlie could he could spin a tail, man. It was it was fantastic. What happens if a song like that's written today? Does it even does it even like get out there with words like the KKK and the bumper stickers and the George McGovern's and the politics? Like Charlie was spinning a story of like, dude, this is all going on in this dirt parking lot, like the Pee Wee Herman show back in the day, play yeah. the playoffs when he tipped all the bikes over. Like that's yeah. an uneasy rider. Like Pee Wee walks into that yeah. bar and they're like, what, what's going on here? Yeah, yeah. Not, I'm not comparing Charlie Daniels to Pee Wee Herman, Charlie Star. I'm not saying that. <laughs> I'm just saying that, that can you imagine the story that's being told of this little dirt parking lot? bar out on the highway and this guy's yeah. stuck in there with a flat tire crazy yeah def- definitely not today i mean you know there's so much um i mean you can't say anything anymore you can't what I mean, about long-haired country boy like it could never go right no no it's uh but you know i mean i don't know it's far be it for me to to try and make sense of the way the world seems now but you know todd snyder um He's a great songwriter. Great you know. Uh, I read a quote from him yesterday that said, um, I, I, I hope that cancel culture and hate culture can all succumb to peace culture sooner than later. And he goes, fighting for peace is like screaming for silence. And I thought, wow, that's a, that's a great way to put it. Yes, sir. So I don't know. I just, but you know, it's the, it's the world we live in right now. Can't explain it. Well, part of that world has brought you your music to the forefront on national cable TV. I know you're on our network. You work with the guys over at red arrow a little bit. They, they got, they're lucky enough to use your music on some shit, which is bad to the bone. Zach, lets us us use his music on our show on the outdoor channel. And I know that there's a long relationship there with you and Zach and the records and the label back in the day. But now it's Yellowstone and this huge, like, cultural, maybe even, I don't even know what you call it, kind of hit. But it's, like, got hippies. It's got country boys. It's got cowboys. It's got females. It's got politics. I mean, it's got everything written all over it, financing and banking and everything written into this freaking country, Western, getting Western story. And here we have Blackberry Smokes music on it to where a guy like me is like, Holy shit, look at it's got Hayes Carl on there. It's got Whiskey Myers on there, Blackberries on there. And I'm just like, I'm in heaven just because of the soundtrack, right? Like, so how, yeah. how'd that come about? A little Yellowstone. Um, well, I think Taylor Sheridan himself, you know, the creator, director, um, he's just a great dude. He loves music. Awesome. Um, and he and he loves what we love. So it was just that was just uh, you know, lucky for us that uh that he likes our kind of music and um i love the show um i remember hearing yes. i hadn't watched it yet uh the first season when um when i got uh, uh i was made aware that he was going to use uh several songs you know or that they were in a uh, first episode i was like i'm hooked probably first two minutes i was yeah. like yeah love this yeah yeah it's fantastic do you feel the same way about Ozark? Have you binge watched Ozark at all during quarantine? I have. They filmed that down here in, yeah. in Georgia. They say it's in Missouri, and, uh, but I see Georgia's on it uh, as the state. Yeah. Um, pretty, pretty genius yeah, TV, yeah. yeah. I'm all caught up. 
how many freaking characters and stories could they put into a 60 or 65 minute episode? It's like, it's hard to, it's like the Sopranos or it's like a Quentin Tarantino movie. If you agree with that, like I had to watch yeah. Pulp Fiction or Reservoir Dogs like nine times before I'm like, oh, that's what that, that's what's going on. Right. Yeah. Same with Ozarks. Yeah. Yeah. Before you get it all, it's, I, you can't like my wife knows, don't, don't come ask me a question when I'm watching Ozark because you can't miss a single second. Have you heard anything about season four starting at all? I haven't. Yeah, I haven't either. I, and Jason Bateman's great. I mean, the little blonde girl, she's, yeah. she's becoming my new favorite actress. I mean, I want to, I want to hang out with her in that, yeah. in that character, right. For just like one night and just hear her say all that stuff that she right. says, man, I appreciate you coming on here. I guess I could talk to you until I'm blue in the face about influences and, and music and where you got it, but you've taken it to a different level, man. You guys have a, a, a following that just eats and breathes and bleeds blackberry smoke and that's got to like when you lay down at night and how long it took to get there and the dreams becoming a reality that there are so many people that want the music not just here anymore you guys this relationship with the uk and europe like you're always there now you went to south america is it humbling to you? Did you ever have an ego? Did you say, wow, did you ever say raw, raw? Or have you always just been so country rooted with the way your mom and dad brought you up, Charlie Starr, that this is just life and you were so humbled to be a part of a band like Blackberry Smoke that has opened up so many opportunities and doors for you? Well, I mean, it's a humbling experience. To me, every night to go out and play for people who paid you know, their hard-earned money to come and listen to and watch you play these songs. Um, that's, that's, that's humbling in itself. It's just like these people are paying us to come out here and play these, these songs, you know? Um, and then when they sing along, there's nothing in the world like that. There's nothing in the world that's better than that. Not to me. I mean, it is a, it is a, I can't even, I can't even put it into words. And they did it in South America and they, you know, we played in, um, uh, well, we played, uh, a handful of countries, but, um, specifically Brazil. Um, I don't know that I've ever seen a group of people that passionate about music ever. And we played one horse town, this song of ours, and they, I didn't have to sing. They sang it at the, at the top of their lungs. And a lot of these people barely speak English, you know, Crazy. It, it was just, it was a, it was life changing to me, but it was just more affirmation. Like, okay, don't ever stop, you know, for don't worry about, um, commercial radio or, you know, success over here, or I don't care where our records chart. And I don't, you know, that if they do, that's great. And that just means people care, you know, and, and, and want to buy it. But, but the moments like that, and I was like, that's why we do it. That's why we'll never stop. And I would I would assume the same thing of the Rolling Stones. Like when they play these stadiums and people are so, they're giving them so much energy and, and you're looking at them like, okay, these dudes are all in their late seventies. Now they're all multi, multi-millionaires. They don't have to do this. They do it because of that right there. Because they just, because they can't get enough of that right there, that exchange of energy, you know, the best exchange. Like I can't imagine that. And you wrote them 
these guys in Brazil, it was they they're going crazy. And you just said another unreal song, which I I think. I think that Whippoorwill is going to go down as probably my favorite Blackberry album. No matter what you come out with in the future, I'm going to love it. From the first guitar hit, I love everything you guys do. But that album was meaningful. It was almost like that Lonesome Song by Jamie, which people have heard me say is the best country music album of all time. My opinion. Yeah. Song to song, I think it's genius. Um, yeah. And the way he did it, right? With Shooter and 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 and, and how he went to LA. It was just a great story of, of the Sunset Strip meets 16th and 17th Avenue. Just kind of cool. Um, uh-huh. But that album, The Whippoorwill, man, that, that shows you right there, Charlie. Just those songs and that. If you have 45 minutes to sit down, you're literally taking out of reality. You're sitting there and you're going in and you're like one second you're in the Andy Griffin show, the next you're in a John Wayne movie, the next you're Rocky and like the next is like like Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And I just look at my posters in my shop and all of the people that I've got to meet over the years and all the experiences that hunting and the outdoors and music has brought me. And that, that album just takes me in and out of life. And I think that that's what is special about what you get to do on top of before you even get on stage and see those light, those lighters or those eyeballs and those voices singing to where when you can cut the music and they don't skip a beat, like that's gotta be, Garth has exemplified that, right? When Garth's eyes, when he looks up at 70,000 people, that's what you get to experience. And I don't think that that can be taken for granted. I don't think that many people, even a football player catching a touchdown pass doesn't get to stop and smell the roses long enough to, because they got to get right back into the game. And you can actually stand there and take a breath and and go, wow, look at my life's work being exemplified by South Americans, by Europeans, by people in California, in Canada, in Georgia, where you're, you know, Georgia and Alabama, where the band's from. Think about how badass that career is, man. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. And I, for that reason, I mean, I, mean, I, I could never like you hear stories about people who are tough on their fans or don't care or won't, won't take, you know, like run to their bus and don't, you know, won't shake a hand or I'm like, that's insanity. You know, you're doing this because these people allow you to do it, 100%. you know, or else you'd be busking on a sidewalk somewhere. Yeah. So it, With your guitar I, I love case those open. people. And, and, you know, there are times that, you know, people are, um, can be, um, you know, people, people are people, people can be testy. And I've, I've experienced some people get mad, you know, like, we change our show up every night. Um, there are some songs that we, we really know that we have to play or else people would be pissed. So we do play those, but there are others that, uh, you know, some will, won't be in the set list for a while because we're moving them in and out, you know, and uh, I get people sometimes that get pretty pissed off and be like, why don't you ever play <laughs> this song anymore? I'm like, we will, we will. We're just working it. You know, they're, they're going like this. Yeah. And we do that not only for ourselves, because it's fun for us to keep it fresh and interesting, because we would never do the same, you know, 90 minutes or two hours, whatever, every night. A lot of people do that, and it's to a click and a grid, and the light show is lined up with it and all that shit. But we keep it, keeps the music fresh in our minds and our hands, you know. And there are people who will come to several shows you know, and they don't want to hear the same thing every night. They'd feel ripped off. Then it's like, well, I just saw that last night, you know? Yeah. But anyway, there is that dude hit me up the other day and it's like, uh, 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 he's like, it's crazy that y'all never play leave a scar anymore. And I'm like, well, we just did actually like March the 8th, <laughs> March the 8th <laughs> before, before it all shut down. But 
I'm like, don't don't ever get the feeling that we never play any song. You know, it'll if it ain't been there in a minute, it'll come back. I think it's kind of cool that you could do 90 minutes, two hours, and not play the same songs from the night before. It's almost like it's almost like a George Strait deal. You know how many people get pissed going to George with 62 number one country hits or whatever, right? Like Blackberry has so many songs that are mean so much to people off your albums. They're like irritated that you didn't play it that night. To me, that's even a cooler compounding feeling of like, well, just, you know, come see us tomorrow and we might hit you up with that one. That's, that's gotta be a badass thing too. So what's next, Charlie? Well, you said, you mentioned a new album. Um, when can we expect it? What can we expect with it? And are you proud of it? Are you excited to get it out there? Is it different than the last Blackberry Smoke albums? What can we expect with it? Um, it is a little different. Just, I mean, to me, they all sound a little different. And that's what we kind of go for is get a little, we wouldn't want to make the same record over and over. Like if we made a, a, a record like the Whippoorwill every time, people would eventually go, can you do something a little, you know, can you shake it up a little? Bit? Um, that being said, we, there's no, there's no, no rapping on it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's rock and roll songs. Uh, there's a couple of big surprises on it that I'm really excited for people to hear. Um, but as it's in really, guest, it's as a, in guests. Uh, there's some guest surprise kind of thing. Um, but I mean, it's a rock and roll record, you know, awesome. it's, and, and it's much like, uh, it, there is one thing to me that, that our records all have in common is they're, that the, they're very, they're varied. You know, when you're listening, you might get a, a big heavy rock and roll song and then you get a kind of a honky tonk song, or you might get a funky song, or you might get a, a really sad song or a really slow song or, um, like an acoustic kind of thing, like ain't got the blues or there's a lot of variety. Um, and the same, same with this new one, but Dave Cobb produced it. Oh, that's um, what I was going to ask. And, uh, it's, I love it, man. I'm excited. It's a, it's a, it's a big rock and roll record. It's hard to beat him as a producer right now. This, yeah. this, al this album's going to be Grammy nominated. These are my calls. Grammy nominated winner of the Grammy for Americana rock, or it should be bigger than Americana, but that's an awesome, awesome, you know, just to establish that and to have a chance. I just think that <clears throat> when I heard that Dave was doing it and having your guys' talent and the lyrics out front, because that's a big deal in Blackberry songs, the lyrics mean everything to me personally. I can't wait to hear it. I know it's going to go Grammy nominated. Yesterday I sat in my pool and I don't mean a pool. It's more like a trough, but <clears throat> I listened to, the whippoorwill and i followed it i was in and out of blackberry and the black crows and there's so much similarity to me of of hearing them sing songs and the way you sing songs they are an incredible band that went away and now i hear they might be getting back together they did i don't know if you know those guys but that yeah. that day yesterday charlie of those songs going in and out i was on cloud nine and I was, I'm not, I'm not kissing your ass. I was literally sitting there with this Bud Light seltzer because, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a cowboy. And I was sitting there going, listen to these freaking songs, man. And I couldn't pick my favorites anymore. I was just like, God, it's just so good to hear. And those two bands right there, if anybody wants to do themselves a favor, go kick in just the Blackberry Smoke and Black, Black Crows and mix them in and out and listen to what happens with Robinson's and Charlie Starr and your guys's. I don't know if you've ever done that, but it's worth your time if you haven't. I know you probably get tired of hearing your own songs i hope you don't but that day yesterday was special to me hearing those albums in and out of each other oh thanks man those dudes are great they're uh 
what a what a uh, a legendary catalog they have. You know, legendary, it's fantastic. It's and I and you guys are at the same level. Like you, and you know, you are. I'm not telling you anything that you haven't heard before. But man, I I appreciate you coming. I wish I knew you better to where I could say. Charlie Starr, I'd really appreciate it if you either grab that acoustic behind you or one that's sitting in your room and just pick one for us and sing. And I hope someday that I get to sit around a fire and hear it or have you do one somewhere where I can just get like a little bit more intimate with it because the music is genius, man. So congrats on a great career for you and Blackberry. Hey, thank you very much, man. Appreciate you, man. I, uh, hold on. Let me end this by saying this has been another episode of This Life Ain't For Everybody podcast. That's the one and only, the legend himself, Charlie Starr, the lead singer, the lead guitarist, the Blackberry Smoke. Check out all their music on all of your different platforms from Apple Music to Spotify to Amazon. <clears throat> they will make your day better. Put it in your ears ASAP. Tom, hit that button. Thank you all so much for subscribing, downloading the podcast, and please continue to support the partners and sponsors that support us just like Jack Daniels. Enjoy it responsibly, never allowed underage drinking. I'm Chad Belding. Until next time, this is going to be, I don't know if we can go out with a Blackberry song, Charlie Star. Are we allowed to? Is it a publishing deal? Can you give me permission to use a certain song that I can play at, play us out with? I can, but that might not mean anything for the bots that take it down when you put it up. I don't know how to control that. <laughs> Which one can I go out with and I'll just risk it? Uh, ain't much left of me. Can I? Oh, I'm doing it. This is Ain't Much Left of Me by Blackberry Smoke. Tom, hit the button. Thank you all very much. Thank you.